Alrighty, welcome to episode 24 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sittman, one of the podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Adler-Bell. Hey, Matt. 24. Episode 24. Hard to believe. Mid-20s. Mid-20s. That's right. Uh, an age we're both past. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, no, I'm in my 30s. Hannah and I were joking <laughs> a few weeks ago. I am too, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you are. <laughs> But we were joking about how it would be funny if someone is like, how old are you? And I say, oh, I'm in my 30s. And they're like, oh, well, how old are you? And I say, 30. <laughs> is that, isn't that kind of weird? What are we ta- what, are, what is this episode? This is great. I'm really excited to share this with listeners. I know you are too. This was a long time coming, and it's with the, the great David Roth, the, um, one of the truly insightful and hilarious chroniclers of the Trump era, you might say. A great prose stylist and satirist. One of our best. Yes. Uh, so it was a lot of fun, as we kind of jokingly put it, putting Trump on the couch. David, just we do want to shout out his current project. He's uh, As he puts it on his Twitter bio, he's the co-owner slash flannel dipshit at Defector Media. <laughs> um, but you've, if you've read his stuff, I mean, he, he's written a lot for The New Republic about Trump, uh, along with other topics. Deadspin, SB Nation, New York Magazine. He's written for a lot of places. So you probably know his work. And and the reason that we wanted to have him on for this episode, which is to to be clear, our first and perhaps last, <laughs> God willing, Trump cast, you know, all Trump all the time. Yeah. The reason we wanted to have him on is because he's one of the only writers who's consistently written really interesting, compelling, funny cutting stuff about Trump that like neither settles for the easiest gags or overreaches to make too much of his sort of like ideological coherence, such as it is. <laughs> right. You know, to do an episode like this, which is different from what we normally do in some some ways that we sort of <laughs> bring out in the beginning of the uh, conversation, David is really the ideal person to do it with. Right. I mean, I think back to a previous episode where Marshall Steinbaum yelled at me for psychologizing the right. Um, and it's true that in general, we've historicized this moment we're in more than we've psychologized it. But with Trump, just his neuroses, his stuntedness, his arrested development, his childishness, or his childlike quality, as we say in the episode. It's a moment where the man's personal qualities and mental defectiveness meets our institutions in a certain political moment in a very profound way. So forgive us for putting Trump on the couch, but that's what we did. And it was kind of fun to just do a deep dive on Trump the man. Yes. I think people will enjoy it. Well, as always, we're really grateful to everyone who supports us on Patreon, uh, and we're grateful for Descent Magazine, which is the sponsor of the podcast. Uh, so if you want to support us financially, you can do so at Patreon. $5 a month gets you all the bonus episodes, which we're trying to do more of, and $10 a month gets you a free digital subscription to Descent as well. So check that out. And we have a lot of good stuff we're going to be cooking up in the months ahead. Being free of Trump will be kind of liberating in a way. We're not, as uh, some of you might have hoped, closing up shop because the bad orange man is about to be gone, <laughs> unfettered by this particular person's personality. We're, we're going to exercise his his demons um, in this episode, but um, we've got so much interesting stuff to get into about the future of the right and it, the history of the right that we haven't touched upon. It's going to be just as important as ever to understand uh, what the fuck these people are trying to do and what they think about what they're trying to do. 
That's right. Well, do you have anything else, Sam? Yes. Last thing is to remind the listeners that our lovely intro and outro music is done by our friend Will Epstein, who records under the moniker High Water. You can find his music on all platforms. Yeah. Well, let's get to it. Here's our conversation with David Roth. Enjoy. David Roth, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. We're excited. This has uh, been a long time coming. Sam has been... Pushing it. You first mentioned this to me months ago. Yeah, we started talking about it during the summer when I was in Maine. And it was a matter of like, could you record from my in-laws like attic? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it's appropriate that we wait until now in many ways. But really, it was like, we've never... We've never done an episode of this podcast that's just about Donald Trump, which in some ways, like a lot of people, they know we do a a podcast about conservatism during these times. You would think that we would be talking about Donald Trump all the time and Mm -hmm. it would be a big Trump, big focus of the podcast. But it's actually not because in most circumstances, what we try to do with the podcast is like provide, you know, historical context and kind of get away from the idea of Trump as this like radical aberrant figure in conservative politics or sort of draw draw the like linkages between the history mm-hmm. of of, you know, conservatism in America and Trump and all this. And so in some ways what we're doing by having you on is like violating all of our principles. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm so humble that you finally like all this work trying to like unpack where all this came mm-hmm. from and now you're like, ah, eh, whatever, but all that shit's that's over. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. We think you're the perfect person to have this uh, conversation with. Yeah, no. And uh, we've done, when we do talk about Trump, it's often been on our bonus episodes where we get a little more pundity, you know, and talk about the debates or the RNC, for example, that grotesque spectacle. So uh, this is for our for our main episodes. Uh, this is a, the first time we've really done a deep dive on Trump and you're the perfect person to talk to. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, things to discuss, of course. But maybe to get started, um, we wanted to sort of set the stage and talk about where Trump came from, Uh, sort of put Trump on the couch a bit, (laughs) formative experiences, you know, uh, a few of the things that really stand out to you, not going over all of his biography or anything, but just, you know, as you think about Trump's, how he was raised, his adolescence, his kind of rise in, in, you know, in, in the kind of on the scene, right? As someone who was in tabloids and in the news and on TV and in the newspapers um, before he became president, what what are the things that really stand out to you as like, if you were to point out a hit, two or three things that like this thing that Trump did or this thing that happened to him that really seems psychologically revealing, what would you point to? We're looking for like the pri- the primal scenes, you know, like the family romance. Like, what? Mm-hmm. What? Why is this man what he is? This is elevator pitch or Citizen Kane version of uh, Trump's life to each other. <laughs> Doesn't he say that Citizen Kane is his favorite movie at some point? Yeah, there's a so there's a video clip as Errol Morris did it too, and it was from the mm-hmm. '90s or something, and it's Trump talking about, and he talks about Citizen Kane, and then I think he talks about uh, like. Is that all there is? Uh, the song, and in both oh, of those instances, wow. it's like I really expected it to be 
like super hideous and stupid. Like the idea of him, you know, being like Leslie Gore, I always preferred very good, you know, of course. And like, but just, it's not like, it seems like he's sort of, I mean, I don't know. It's very Trumpian in the sense that he like understands what it is that he's seen, but like none, not in an emotional way. Like he just is sort of like able to recall certain moments and be like, that was like, not really a very good sled. If you look at it, it was very poorly made, like, (laughs) which is just, which is like kind of the secret sauce with this guy. That it's just like there's no uh-huh. you know, point too overt for him to either like miss or misconstrue such that it's actually about him and and you know how well made all of his sleds are. Uh, the Trump sleds, yeah. So we're looking for Trump rosebuds here. Yeah. So it's funny. Like I, the last thing I wrote about him uh, was not you know a significant addition to the canon by any stretch, but it was like about these photos uh, that were taken of him inside his Yukon driving by people protesting on his behalf, where he's kind of making weird faces, like the yes. the mouth thing he yes. does where he's like, ooh, like that face, he does that one in there, the one that you know, he did when he was pretending to drive the truck, <laughs> where, he's, where he's making the, the fake yelling face, all the classics, uh, all the, the favorites um, that we've come to know over these years. And it reminded me to a certain extent of like, like the last bit of his presidency, I went back and found one of the, you know, many Gabriel Sherman stories from Vanity Fair about, uh, you know, his dad. Fred Trump uh, had Alzheimer's when he passed and, you know, which is a terrifying and terrible disease and Mm -hmm. was such a tyrant and, you know, also so, you know, much the person that he was that he was just sort of allowed to keep coming into the office anyway, that he was driven there in a limousine every day. There were papers sort of placed on his desk that he sorted through. There was a phone that only went out to his secretary and he would call her and yell at her and then hang up again. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of, uh, you know, the window into like what his dad might've been like. And, you know, at the risk of like attempting uh thumbnail Freudian interpretations of someone that like, not only that that's I've what not, we're do- that's what we're doing. Yeah. Not even someone I've not personally met like on as somebody that's read like you know a couple of essays about freud but not a lot of the source material there's something about how sort of overweening and cruel his father reportedly was you know that and sort of like how uncompromising mm-hmm. uh a man he was that i think like it has to be in the mix in terms of like how do you wind up as like not just like gnarled as as trump is but Mm -hmm. like sort of like stunted in the way that he's got there's something very uh like child like as opposed to childish about him i think that like he really kind of just acts like uh as a friend once put it like the way that an eight-year-old thinks that rich people act Mm -hmm. and i think that you know growing up in a, a household as unhappy and as weird uh in terms of its priorities as his uh certainly has to be like integral to the malformation of him uh i don't think it exactly explains how he's managed to stay the same for you know five (laughs) decades well another thing that's childlike a childlike quality is sort of living in an like imminent eternal present yes Yes. there's no past there's no future Mm -hmm. there's just right right what's in front of his face and how it makes him feel yeah and i think that that's you know For children, that's both a sort of natural disposition and a coping strategy if there's, like, a lot of (laughs) trauma about. Um, So, yeah, I mean, yeah, he stays in an eternal present. Uh, He stays himself the same way he was. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's also 
the residue of a lack of consequence in the sense that like, I think he really, in the way that like, you know, like if you're a kid, I was thinking about this the other day with my, my nephew and niece that like, I remember my youth is basically like, you just get told to do things and then you go get in the car and you get taken someplace. Right. And sometimes there's like a holiday. So you're like, oh, all right. So it's that grandma. Like, <laughs> right. <on this> day. <laughs> but other times it's just shit that just happens to you. And you're like, all right. You know, and for Trump, I think that like, he's never really like been held to account mm-hmm. for any of the things that he's done wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think up to and including this, you know, electoral loss. Like, I know. I, just, yeah. I think that for the most part, so you can just sort of wake up every day and be like, all right, well, let's see yeah. what happens. Yeah, no, I think that's, David, it, it's so true. I mean, the way we'll get to some of this as we go along, but the way people are talking about him, uh, you know, like in a Washington Post article, a senior Republican official will say, well, we're just going to let him kind of have this period of acting oh, yeah. out right like that terrible quote yes. like what's really the risk what's the harm right, in letting right him- just kind of letting him down easy letting him have this uh, little outburst letting him tweet about it but the lawsuits aren't going to work so we're just going to let it's kind of like you know easing someone away from the window you're <laughs> right mm-hmm. um but you're also right that he's never faced consequences and i've only read one trump biography it was the one i think uh, the Washington Post put together kind of from their reporting on him over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. But I will say that was of all the things I took from it, because that was more news based. It wasn't super psychoanalytic, you might say. Um, yeah. th- my takeaway was that he's never faced consequences for anything, um, even when his businesses were failing. Like there's scenes where he was hauled in front of like executives from all the banks he owed money to or like all the people he owed money to. And his lawyers were there, his accountants were there, and they tried to figure out what to do. And basically, even as his businesses were failing, even as he owed tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars even, they would basically say something like, well, we're going to let you kind of save face um, and keep your name on a bunch of this stuff. And it was kind of worth more to the banks he owed money to and the people he owed money to, to kind of keep his name... I don't want to say respectable, but to not kind of totally destroy him and kind of get what money they could. And it was a way of, yeah, just not really holding him accountable and kind of letting him off easy and giving him sort of, as I said, with this quote from a senior Republican official about kind of letting him have his tantrum, kind of letting him pretend to be a successful businessman still, even as they would then try to get what money they could from some of the assets he had or, uh, you know, the parts that made money, they would garnish a certain part of it and give him basically a, an allowance every month, what he could spend. So it's it, the lack of any accountability or ever really facing any consequences for anything he's done, to me, is one of the really standout features of his biography. I can't imagine a more deranging way to live than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to just absolutely, to really believe that you can just do whatever you want. I think is like, you know, not an, uh, a license to behave responsibly is not how most people I think would, you know, accept that. I don't know where, I mean, whatever, I guess it, it, that's basically what it is, is that he's been coddled in a very particular way for a very long time. And I think that like, you know, I guess that that's what people sort of aspire to in terms of like the part of his brand that is aspirational is the idea of being, you know, rich at a level where accountability just doesn't even factor into the equation at all. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's all about license. Yeah, and famous yeah. at a certain level because it's essentially this these deals I mentioned where he would get to save face. They basically made the calculation that he was worth more to them as a famous person with his the basic public idea of him intact than uh, than it was to kind of really take him to the mat and get everything they could from him right away. Well, this is this is relevant, I think, to one of. David's major insights about Trump and also to sort of um, his uh, character in general, which is about surfaces and the way that he experiences himself primarily as he is reflected back to him in television and news, right? He doesn't, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have like a, he doesn't seem to have like a coherent subjective experience of reality, um, independent (laughs) of how it's reflected back to him by the press. And Matt, I was, Matt was just telling me about this great anecdote about what he says is the first time he saw his name in the paper. Yeah. Um, and David, it's a perfect one for you because it involves baseball. So as, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about just kind of like episodes from his life that stick out to me or things he said about his life that stick out to me. And one of them is when he tweeted, I think in 2014, that he uh, was the best baseball player in the state of New York in high school. Um, and that he could have played professional baseball. And so I was looking that up, and then it it turns out in the course of that, there was a book published called The Games Do Count, America's Best and Brightest on the Power of Sports. And basically, it was famous people writing little stories about their sports experiences. And Trump said this, I'll, I'll quote from it. He said, I will never forget the first time I saw my name in the newspaper. It was when I got the winning home run in a game between our academy and Cornwall High School. It was in 1964, and it was in the little local paper. It simply said, Trump homers to win the game. I just loved it, and I will never forget it. It was better than actually hitting the home run. Now, of course, there's no evidence that this actually happened. <laughs> I was going to say, so there, uh, a buddy of mine, a guy I worked with at Vice Sports, wrote a story about Trump's high school baseball career yeah. that was pegged to that. And like, and I don't think he ever hit a home run in his entire high school. No, this, this article goes on to say that, at least from the records they could tell, that season he was referencing, he was, uh, his batting average was 138. Mm-hmm. Which... It's not 100% what you want. You'd have to see the batting eye there uh, to know if you're going to use modern analytics <laughs> right, to, right, to right. try to ascertain his value. <laughs> right. And he played first base, I guess, and they everyone says he was a decent fielder. But anyways, this idea that he was, uh, like he said uh, in a different tweet, he could have been a professional baseball player, but luckily for him, he went into real estate instead. Um, he has the story about hitting a home run. That was his first time he saw his name in the paper, and, and it's all... As far as anyone can tell, it never happened. But what is so? It gets to Sam's point that this idea of seeing himself, his under his experience and understanding of himself, is has something to do with how it's reflected back to him in the media. But also the kind of odd lies and the well, just that that he's the best at anything he does, and he could have done. He could have been a professional baseball player. He could have been this. He could have been that. Instead, he went into real estate, acting like that was a choice rather than just, you know, following his father into business. Um, What do you make of that kind of thing? I have always been, this is one of my, my, you don't want to say favorite, but one of the things I find most interesting (laughs) sort of about Trump are the the weird, obvious lies, uh, you know, and then there's never, you know, much in the way of subtext with the guy. So you can see that when he says stuff like that, it's just basically 
everything that he says is something that he wants to be true. Mm-hmm. And like very often that's, a, you know, it has only an actual, like a glancing actual relationship with the truth as, you know, other people might be able to identify it. But it is the sort of thing where like the idea of wanting to be the best at everything again is like, I guess it's like a little kid thing. I think there's also some element of it where it's just like internalizing the like sort of uh, trash success culture of the like Reagan era, like the moments when he was really like on top. Yeah. So this is basically like the idea of like Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. as like a, a way of being, you know, just being like <laughs> like the ultra, like the strongest, the most American, the best, whatever. And yeah. so the idea of like the lies that he tells in that those ways, I think, are like the only really illuminating statements that he's capable of making. Mm-hmm. Because he's not really ever going to tell the truth if he can avoid it one way or the other. But usually the lies are overt enough that you can see just how, like, the more grandiose the lie, the more uh, dire his actual reality is, as he, like, to the extent that he's able to understand it. Yeah. But there's something about, I mean, we've really, like, suffered for how like earnest his belief is in that because like while he is sort of lying i think there's also this element where like part of the reason that the pandemic response was so bad i really think is that like he could not accept that epidemiologists knew more about the virus than him Mm -hmm. yeah that he really wanted to be able to say that like they told me about it i really got it like this part of it is all stuff that he said and you know they were really surprised by how much i got it no one thought that trump would be able to <laughs> unlock the vaccine whatever you can imagine the like mm-hmm. how it would come out but like so that's obviously bullshit that he says because he wants the conversation to be about him mm-hmm. and yet like i don't think it's 100% bullshit like i think that that really is the way that he thinks about it so a yeah. lot of the dumbest stuff that he's done in terms of like maybe we should look into injecting the bleach and all of that shit like he's he thinks he's helping yeah well is it sort of you know there's that great uh seinfeld episode where jerry's taking a lie detector test um he, he's dating this cop and he claims to never have seen uh like beverly hills 90210 and uh he and the cop he's dating says no you you uh You've seen it. And so he's taking this lie detector test. And of course, he turns to George Costanza for help. And George, his advice is, he just said to Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Iconic. Uh, One of those things, too, that like you had to know when you're writing it, that like there's some chance that that comes back and bites you as something other than a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, where does that come from? You mentioned we kind of glancingly got at the daddy issues stuff. But could you be more specific? Because, you know, Fred Trump, his uh, developer father, obviously was an asshole. Is this where it comes from? I mean, I think that there's probably some of it there. But I do think that a lot of it, you know, like obviously in the way that, you know, everybody's upbringing influences the person that they wind up growing up to become. I also think, though, that the milieu in which he grew up in terms of like white, wealthy Queens people in terms of it just being like a lot of privilege, but not like sort of a, mm-hmm. you know, like a in, in its way, like sort of a marginal and aspirational version of wealth, like really not mm-hmm. unlike the people that I think gravitated to him as, uh, you know, his his true base. I mean, like the richest people in the poorest congressional yeah. districts and, the, you know, that that. Uh, you know, there's there's some element of that, but I really do think that that sort of like the superheated like selfishness 
mm-hmm. and uh, like success valorization of like to a certain extent the 1970s, but then especially the 1980s, like really was a moment where like somebody who didn't just present himself as sort of like a cartoon of like power and wealth, but who actually conceived of himself that way, like could shine in the culture in like a really novel sort of way. Yes. So David, I know what we're doing now is trying to sort of unearth some of the underlying contributing factors to the character of this person, (laughs) the psychological traumas that produced a man with such a gaping hole of need and narcissism inside of him. But one of the things that I have found so interesting about your work over the course of the Trump presidency, and you sort of referred to this before we started recording, which is that every time you write about him, you said you feel like it's got to be the last time, like what else is there to say? And there was, (laughs) there was a line um, in one of your pieces where you said, as with most things about Trump, there's not a lot to unpack here. And (laughs) which is sort of an indictment of what we're trying to do with this podcast. But I think it's it's what makes me so impressed by the writing that you've done about him um, when like one of the central insights is that, you know, Trump is sort of what he appears to be and no more, no less that he's constantly just blurting out what all whatever his neurosis is, um, whatever the subtext of what he's saying is, he says it as text. Um, and yet you, David, you've produced all this excellent writing about him, um, sort of you're just plainly stating what's in front of our eyes, but in some way that makes him come into view more clearly. You know, while we're in this period of kind of sketching the outlines of this person, you know, maybe before he becomes president, um, I'd be interested to hear from you. When did you become preoccupied with Trump? Because <laughs> one of the things that I know is that you wrote about him bef- well before he was president, that you followed him on Twitter, that you found him to be sort of some kind of representative uh, synecdoche for something about American culture, celebrity culture. And I'd be interested to hear from you, like, when did Trump kind of come on your radar? And what did you think about him then? And just to for listeners, back in 2014, David, you made up a quote that, like, you put a quote in Trump's mouth from a, a book he didn't write <laughs> called Winning. Um, yeah, and, one of his best. <laughs> right. And that he retweeted. So um, you've been on the Trump beat for a while, and I didn't mean to interrupt there, but it's it's. And then he he blocked me. No, that's it's true. I, mean, I appreciate not having to tell that story because it's the sort of thing where like, it's just embarrass. All of it is very embarrassing. Like it's fact. Everything you said is fact. I'm just not going to go more into the fact that like in 2014, like a little before midnight, I was like, oh, you know what I should do right now? Like instead of going to sleep in the big bed I share with my wife (laughs) (laughs) is make up a quote from. So I Trump, I first noticed him, you know, like as somebody growing up in New Jersey, you know, going to like the deli in my town. And so like, I think I probably met him at like Wilkes Deli on the cover of the New York Post or the Daily News, where he Mm -hmm. would remain Mm -hmm. throughout my childhood. Just for, he was like that sort of character that those sort of tabloids would like. This like super overstated Mm -hmm. rich New York guy who was constantly getting in feuds and going through acrimonious public divorces and, uh, you know, like appearing in Ghostbusters 2 or whatever. And just like, I'd sort of- Home Alone? Yeah, and Home Alone uh, 2. 
He wasn't. He's not a Two. guy that makes it into a lot of the the first versions of things. But the right uh-huh. there's a story that uh, I think it was like Matt Damon told about if you wanted to shoot in a Trump property, which for a while in, included the plaza in Manhattan, you would have right. to give him a cameo. You would have to shoot it, and it wouldn't have to be in the film. <laughs> but that you had to. So there was like, and the way that he would like come up with the concept for it. And so th- I think the part that Damon talked about was when they were shooting like Scent of a Woman there. And the whole idea was that, like, Trump would walk in and Al Pacino would be like, wow, Donald Trump, what an honor. <laughs> and like, so that, and that was that was the bit. And so, like, he would like Trump's bossing the lighting people around. And like, so he had this oh idea of like what he represented in the culture. And I think I sort of saw that, you know, as a kid. And I was just like, oh, all right, well, this is like famous rich guy. Like, this is like grown up Richie Rich, but mean. Uh-huh. And then, like, later, I think the... I never watched The Apprentice. Um, I was, you know, like aware of it sort of like rising and falling Mm -hmm. uh, in popularity. But there was this element of like the version that he was like trying to be by, you know, the 2010s, by the decline of The Apprentice was so clammy and weird and fake that I was fascinated by it. Mm. And so like just in the sense that, you know, it was clear by that point, you know, like we'd had this economic collapse that I think, you know, it was not the sort of thing that everybody learned for the first time. But I think for me, that was a moment where it was clear that first of all, uh, like elites were not necessarily smarter than non-elites and Mm -hmm. that uh, rich people were in fact, in many cases, both significantly more craven and dumber than Mm -hmm. the average person that you would encounter in your own life. And this guy was the most like, gilded grandiose fake version of a rich guy and he was online all the time lot at you know before he got into politics he would just basically fucking live tweet access hollywood every night Mm -hmm. and like you know (laughs) do the celebrity birthdays and be like there's a lot of tweets from around then when um robert pattinson and Kristen stewart were breaking up yes and he's like you know just giving advice to robert pattinson as if robert pattinson is listening you know, mm-hmm. sort of being like, Bobby, you can't do it. Like, she'll, you know, she's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not, like, adding him into the conversation or anything. It was just, there was something mm-hmm. about the assumption that, like, that you had advice that Robert Pattinson needed to hear. And also that, like, he was going to find it one way or another. That he was going to seek it out and be like, I wonder what the guy that's been divorced five times thinks about my relationship right. as, like, a whatever, a 22-year-old famous guy, that there was that bit of it. And I think that, like, even then as he started, like, getting, you know, more into conservative politics and, and you know, then, like, kind of running and stuff like that, you know, actually for real. Although, like, I remember in 2012, there was some stuff about he was, it was really anti-Obama by that point and, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to sort of, like, make himself a player in GOP politics. That at that point, like, there was something so clownish about him, and yet there was, I think, in the way that, you know, it would later, you know, take shape at during his, his actual candidacy and presidency, that it was clear that there was something in it that was, like, the apotheosis of not just, like, the way that the Republican Party had sort of come to conceive of itself, but also that, like, here was an example of someone who, like, really believed everything he saw on Fox, believed that he was the hero of the American story, believed that the other guys were stupid uh, and, you know, like just beneath contempt and who like 
so fully internalized all of that without any like break on it at all. So there was something kind of like fascinating about that. You know, like it was hard to imagine or it was, I think, much harder to imagine before these last four years. Like, what would it actually be like if you swallowed all of that shit? Like if you did the whole Scarface mountain of cocaine, but the cocaine is just like Lou Dobbs. Yeah. And that's him. Like, I think <laughs> yeah. that that's just like what this is what it does to our brain. Yeah. Do you think do you think Trump does a lot of uppers? Yeah, but I think they're all like weird prescription stuff. Yeah, like what JFK got. Yeah, and that's like mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's the official drug of the presidency is like just prescription amphetamines. But I yeah. think with Trump, the the part of it that I've always like of all the like dumb conspiracies about him, not conspiracies, but like you know, sort of cheesy comic postulations that I've allowed myself to believe, the idea that he's still just like crushing uh weird cold pills from the 90s and that's where he gets his uh (laughs) energy from like i have no problem with that because i believe that all of the cult like all of the stuff that he like he's the last guy that's got tab in his fridge like he's the last guy that's got like Mm -hmm. discontinued tic-tac colors that somehow he still has access to all totally yeah Mm -hmm. i want to read a line from your 2014 piece i know you're trying to get away from this story about, no, no, it's about right. trump retweeting a fake quote that you made up about him at uh, midnight when you should have been in bed with your wife yeah but, yeah yeah that part yeah but um <laughs> the uh the line just because as like a sort of like terrifying monkey's paw of what was to come you wrote uh my opinions on trump as an unpleasant public figure exemplar of idiot materialism and general charlatan are a matter of public record Mostly what I'm interested in with these tweets is Trump's online voice, which is both stupendously vain and stupendously petty and not at all like anyone else on Twitter. And then here's the parentheses. Although Alec Baldwin is pretty close. Oh, boy. I do not remember that. <laughs> oh, shit. God. I feel like you conjured uh, the entire era into existence with this piece. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot more people that are like him than we knew. Yeah. Uh, maybe at the time. I'm certainly like at this point, uh, like just from somebody that's living in new york like the difference between trump and andrew cuomo is like work ethic and yes. the specific version of like inherited damage from dad yeah that's a good point well david since you brought up uh kind of his first forays into politics we know he was a uh, a major booster of the obama birtherism stuff uh that bullshit that might have been an early hint that he had political aspirations. But even even before then, in the 80s, he would talk about America. I mean, it's funny, one of, the, one of your great lines, uh, I, I have it written down here. It was in your piece, uh, The Man Who Was Upset in New Republic uh, from June 2019. You say, he never does or says anything new, but some things may be shaded slightly differently from one blurt or boast to the next. Uh, and it made me think of, like, in the 80s, he would talk about how Japan was... Outstripping America. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like, like you know, we were falling behind Japan, and now it's China, but it's still kind of the same rhetorical tropes. Uh, so he, he did have a foot in politics or kind of would weigh in on politics. He did that in New York, too, with the Central Park Five shit. And, like, just any... Uh, he just likes to be on TV, man. Yeah. He, likes to, he likes to have his opinion heard. It's just that his opinions are usually real bad. And we can imagine with the rumors that, like, like 
it very well may be him calling in to these papers and saying, hey, you know, Donald Trump might be uh, thinking about running for president. Yeah. Matt's always talking about that. What, what was his, his pseudonym? John Barron. John Barron, his fake, his pseudonym. A name he used as a fake PR person for himself who would call the tabloids and tell them things about Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, the, the John Barron stuff is so bizarre to me. And then he names his son after his fake pseudonym, his, his fake name his pseudonym well it's like i think he just likes it because it sounds like royal i know like his i, I think that yeah like the john Barron thing is like that is the name that he would make up just because it's like he you know john that's like a, a boy's name and then Barron, <laughs> that's a fancy thing yeah but so so he it's not shocking that he eventually kind of goes into politics maybe one way of posing a question would be when he actually ran for the presidency, kind of formally announced, came down the escalator as every article of Trump begins with. He comes down the escalator at Trump Tower. What what were your initial thoughts? As a longtime Trump watcher, did you think he had a chance? Were you bullish on him? Did you think, oh, this is just a stunt? Did you have kind of theories about why he did it? A couple of years ago, I interviewed Fran Lebowitz. And one of the things she, and this was after Trump had won, one of the things she said was that Looking back over the past however many years, she did not understand the importance of reality television to kind of the American psyche and just how how influential that was in shaping the public's or at least a, a certain part of the the population's understanding of who Trump was. And so maybe like as we move toward Trump becoming president, you know, he's he's about to run, but that comes on the heels of or he decides to run that comes off on the heels of The Apprentice, which kind of, you know, did sort of shift maybe a, the country's opinion of him from like a tabloid New York businessman of some kind, maybe a bad, a failed businessman, someone who had you know, gone bankrupt, someone who even failed at running casinos. Like, you know, an industry where the line is, the house always wins. Trump failed at that. Um, you know, two times, multiple times to someone then who, you know, was the savvy businessman giving advice to would be entrepreneurs, the you're fired stuff, you know, so his public image kind of shifts at least to some degree in part because of the apprentice, uh, he decides to run what's those kind of transition years. And then his, you know, him actually running for office. What, what did you make of all that? I've thought about this a lot and I don't know if, I'm giving myself credit after the fact. Um, I I didn't think he would run until he ran because I thought, as I think now, that he's fundamentally just kind of like a lazy guy. Like that mm-hmm. he'd rather like he not lazy in terms of like he will work his ass off, like he will make up a fake guy and make a phone call as that guy in order to get on TV or in the newspaper. He's very mm-hmm. dedicated to that. I didn't think that he really wanted the the job, and I you know I still mostly maintain that he he wouldn't have wanted it. And so there was this sense of like, you know, it was obviously like ominous to me that this guy who had this, as you said, like, you know, this role in the culture in a, you know, a show that was, you know, was not like a massive success by the time he was moving towards politics, but it had been, and he was basically playing like the boss, like (laughs) the stern, rich owner guy. And that as like an archetype, it's like, it's not my personal choice, you know, like I don't, I <laughs> yeah. don't generally respond very well to it, but like a lot of people really fucking do. And that like to just be that character on TV for that long, like, I think I was always aware that there was some 
possibility that it could go wrong. And I remember mm-hmm. definitely during the campaign where he was like, once you get him up there against these just dweebs and legacy guys yeah. that mm-hmm. comprise the Republican, you know, the top tier of their candidates. Yeah. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, those kind of jokers. Yeah. Like just like these, like people that were basically bred in like a hothouse to be the most unbearable type of person imaginable. <laughs> like to think about like Ted Cruz was like the consensus, most annoying guy at Princeton for four mm-hmm. years. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that take? Like, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so though when he got up there though like that was the part where i think i really remember feeling kind of sick to my stomach because mm-hmm. you know what he does like what his politics is and what i think like what now like you know the gop's you know to the extent that there is like you know a politics there beyond like just sort of a series of reactions and reflexes like he got up and as you said earlier like spoke the subtext instead of the text and so like mm-hmm. instead of using this like jargon and euphemism for the you know notably very cruel and uh you know sort of backwards policies that you know conservative politicians favored at that time he was just like he's not going to talk about you know like we're going to work towards restricting immigration flows with an emphasis on self-deporting or whatever. He's going to be like, no, I'm going to build a wall. And if they try to go across, I'm going to kick their brown asses back over the border. And that's how it's Mm going to be Mm -hmm. like, and that's just like, because he knows what pops. And then also because he wasn't trained in this stupid second language of euphemism that conservatives used. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that, you know, it obviously made him, more compelling than the other candidates. And then as it became clear that, you know, he was going to be running against Hillary, like I never believed that Hillary Clinton was a lock to win, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like I, it seemed like I knew what the the polls said and stuff, but she had, if I can use a, a sports metaphor that is well beneath all of us, but I'm going to do it anyway. There's when the NCAA tournament happens that there are teams where the, like, a kind of a bummy, like third place in the Big Ten team winds up, you know, getting a fifth seed and they go up against a 12th seed that like won a small conference and lost two games all year. And you're mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, all right, like the actual underdog in this game is mm-hmm. Iowa, like, and <laughs> right. not Stephen F. Austin. <laughs> right. Because like I've seen Iowa a bunch of times and they stink. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they like, they've got big, you know, like state of the art athletes and stuff. They're just not really very good. <laughs> and like Hillary was absolutely like a, that prime five. She seed. was Iowa, but mm-hmm. she couldn't win it. Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's tough. Not any times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I obviously also like all due respect to that, that program. Uh, they've done great things there. I don't want to take any. Oh yeah. No, that's <laughs> just, we'll, we'll cut, we'll right, cut right. that. We have a lot of, uh, yeah, please. Can you just replace it with Michigan state afterwards or something? <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, this is Matt and I talk about a lot on the podcast that the turning point for Trump was the debate in South Carolina where he said, you know, the wars are stupid and and you know, Bush Bush was president on 9/11. He didn't keep us safe. Bush did 9/11 and um like and and the thing is, I mean, and, and the irony here is and this is not probably original, but what's incredible about Trump is that he's both the biggest liar who's ever been president and the most truthful president of all time. Yeah, because he's not mm-hmm. capable of nuance. Right. And so anything that he'd have to finesse there, he's just not going to be able to do it. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, that's like the, I think the lesson of his politics and like the thing 
not the the single lesson, but like the thing that it seems like is is going to be the one that gets carried forward is that like so much of of that stuff, especially about you know like Bush kept us safe, like these wars are important because if we you know all the the sort of like cheesy rhetoric that really wound up being pretty bipartisan by the time he was running in mm-hmm. 2016 that like all of that is defensive it is a way of like explaining a status quo that doesn't help anyone and mm-hmm. that i think is like pretty clearly failed when you look at it and it's something that both parties do and like you know a good offense will beat that defense like just mm-hmm. coming out and saying stuff and then not doing anything about it is still a more powerful approach than having to try to like find exactly the right level of you know supporting our troops but being open to kinetic solutions to the Afghan crisis or whatever there's a, a lot of power in saying what is obvious but not doing anything about it actually and Trump is somebody mm-hmm. yeah. because <laughs> of his inability to appreciate that like words and actions have consequences that everything is exists on this like imminent plane of the you know um, immediacy that like he has yep. the idea that you ju- you just say what feels good and is going to make people feel good whether or not you can carry it through and there really aren't any consequences for that in american politics either I mean, not if you don't right, believe yeah. there will be <laughs> people tiptoe around being careful about what they promise because they th- they they still are operating in this world where politics is not pure spectacle, where what you say on the campaign trail, you actually have to follow through on. Yeah. Or you'll be held accountable for it and, you know, by the voters or by whatever. And Mm -hmm. like that, I absolutely agree with that dude, because that is the part of this that has felt the queasiest to me, like outside the actual, like the institutional cruelties and, and the actual like crimes of the administration is that like, it is clear at this point that at the very least, the Republicans have accepted that, there's no that consequences aren't real right that none of this is really binding in any mm-hmm. way and also that you know if you say you're going to do stuff and then you don't do it that's not and you you don't apologize for it you don't acknowledge it or you just insist that you did do it yeah yeah right and then and like that works just as well like in the it mm-hmm. doesn't work as well in the sense that like all of our institutions are rotting and nothing works but it works just as well in terms of like returning you to office yeah over, you know, a challenger who, like, politely points out that you didn't do these things. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I wanted to put one more thing on the table here before we get to Trump kind of as president, maybe, uh, because it, it was it, it came to me during the primaries. And, and I was thinking of this when you mentioned how the kind of dweebish, lame opponents of his in the Republican primary, people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and, and so on. And that's I want to be careful how I say this, but Trump's kind of funny. Super He's funny. Super funny. I think we can acknowledge that. Like, no, he's hilarious. Yeah. And it gave the debates, like, I don't know what this says about me, but in a weird way, I sort of, I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed watching the primary debates, but there was something satisfying about Trump beating up on someone like Marco Rubio. Yeah. It was the, ca- like, the Caddyshack dynamic was undeniable. Yes. There. Yeah. And one of the things that stood out to me both, bec- it kind of gets to how, immersed he was in the Fox cinematic universe and kind of the right wing id, but also says something about his sense of humor. That first Fox debate uh, in August 2015, something I go back to a lot, there was that appropriately hard pointed question at him about all of his negative comments about women, all the nasty misogynist things he'd said. And Megyn Kelly kind of went through the list. And of course, uh, what most people remember is that he afterwards 
kind of said she said that because she was having her period, right? But the question ended with Megyn Kelly saying something like, what do you say about all these things you've said about women? And Trump, one of his responses was, he said, I've only said that about Rosie O'Donnell. That was one of those moments where, like, my father, both of my parents voted for Trump. And, like, it's when Trump said things like that. Like, my father, probably of all the celebrities he's bitched about over the years to me like rosie o'donnell is at the top of the list and i was like and to me i think some i'm in my i'm 39 like rosie o'donnell's not really that famous anymore she hasn't been famous for like basically for her and like bet midler being two of trump's uh (laughs) right right you know like longtime stalking horses it's like yeah this is perfect yeah but for like people of a certain age like my parents age like the rosie o'donnell thing was just red meat for someone like my dad and And it was also kind of funny in a way, like it diffused the pointedness Mm. of the question because he he kind of pivoted from something very serious to like making a joke about Rosie O'Donnell and the crowd laughed like people ate it up. And so there's also a strange way in which I think he kind of gets away with certain things because you're never quite sure if it's real or like if it's a serious answer or it's just kind of somehow diffused, to use that word again, by kind of turn it into a joke and it makes it seem like well maybe he's not as vicious and cruel and terrible as he might actually be because it all has this joke quality about it yeah or i I think that's right and i think the thing i would add to it is that there's it's an uncanniness because like that is funny like Mm -hmm. he does have good comic timing also though i don't think he necessarily meant it as a joke like i think that a lot of (laughs) his funniest the funniest things he does are just like really weird behaviors that are just like things where he's doing where he's like what would a boss do at this moment what would a boss do at this moment Mm -hmm. and then that's how you wind up with him today like at the um when he did the the pardoning of the turkey at the white house which is one of the few things Mm -hmm. as president that he's really ever seemed to enjoy uh are Mm -hmm. events like that where he extemporized that uh Thanksgiving is a, a great holiday for it's a really important holiday for turkeys, but probably not a very happy one if you think about it. That's a little ad lib he threw in. And then after he pardoned the turkey, he thanked it. Thank you. So the the, the turkeys were named Corn and Pops, and he was like, "Thank you, Corn." Now a president thanking a turkey yeah. is as funny a thing as any president could do, and it is not something that I think he was doing like. Maybe he was doing it at the moment, you know, sort of was doing shtick. But I think in general, that's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like when he says, like, congratulations to people at weird times. Like, that's just like he's a Teddy Ruxpin. You know, there's just the cassette back there that's got like a few rich guy phrases. <laughs> and every now and then they're going to come out like all wrong and garbled or at strange times. And it's the funniest shit in the world. But I do agree that that does like soften the edges somewhat because it's like no one that's that ridiculous and that like sort of stilted like it's. It's hard to be like, yeah, that person also wants to like do ethnic cleansing. Yeah, yeah. It can be hard to reconcile like what you're describing. This this absolutely transparently ridiculous person who clearly all of his motivations are purely, you know, self-protective, like ego protection. Just just doing whatever he can do to make himself feel good um, and resisting any piece of information or scenario which makes him feel bad like there's no truth and mm-hmm. f- fact there's just what makes me feel good and what makes me feel bad um but the fact that someone mm-hmm. like that gets inside of the republican party and then the white house 
and is capable of doing so much damage is what makes it what's made it hard to talk about Trump, his ridiculousness and his viciousness and and, and the things that he's done to the country throughout this time. You know, so like there's a way in which um, when people there, you know, like when Matt was a little sheepish about saying that he's funny, it's because there's a way where if you laugh at him too much, like, are you being irresponsible or something because he's so dangerous it's hard to reconcile these two things right and i think that my instinct about it is that what it is is yes that person exactly that person uh no more no less there's no secret agenda there's what he appears to be and his motivations are clear put in control of a system that's just itself malicious and broken and designed to make it much easier to do harm than good. Yeah. <laughs> like like it's that man, exactly that man. You don't he doesn't have to be a secret brilliant fascist. It's that man, but inside of a system that puts all the levers right in front of him and and the lever that says, you know, racism and cruelty is is the biggest one and uh he gets to pull it and make that face like when he was driving the truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably like the the horn that you pulled down and it's like womp, womp. that's him with uh yeah, with that thing <laughs> cleansing. Mm-hmm. The there I think that's definitely right. I mean, I think that this is like the thing that again, like I feel like I have like one or two things to say about the guy and I have to keep trying to find new ways to say them. And you do. But but to me, well thank you. <laughs> the <laughs> but there is like that I think that that's Correct, especially in the sense that, like, the idea that someone as vacuous and, like, unthinking as him could so thoroughly not just, like, expose the, you know, the vacuity and, you know, nastiness of whatever was supposed to be ideology on the conservative side, but that, like, he understands it better and uses it more vigorously than, you know, the presidents that have sort of come before him in that tradition. Yeah is a, a really brutal satire of that entire way of thinking that it is like it exposes it i think utterly in a way that i don't know that they'll ever be able to conceal like i don't think you can go back to like a romneyfied version of conservative politics after this mm-hmm. because of the fact that like it's now clear what it is and what it seeks to do because he he stopped talking about it in a way that made people zone out and he never appeared superficially to be a decent man in the way that, you know, Romney did, for instance. And so the veneer of like, I mean, I don't even know what George W. Bush's appeal was, but I think there was a sort of piety to him, like a presumed personal piety Mm -hmm. with Romney. There's this, you know, this idea of, you know, mastery and intelligence. And with McCain, there's years of public service. Trump doesn't have any of that shit. And he didn't talk the same language as them. And yet, like, it's hard to say that his presidency, except for, like, the, you know, the sort of the tonal mania of it, was really any different than theirs would have been. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, he he pursued the same goals. He just called them what they were. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's my one point. The other one is that his hair looks weird. I've noticed that. Did you notice that his yeah. face is kind of orange as well? <laughs> I haven't, but that's interesting. Somebody should get on that. <laughs> David, in, in that uh, 2014 piece you're trying to get away from, you talk about what a strikingly strange physical presence he has. You say he is the complexion of a creamsicle, and his hair swirls atop his head with disconcerting translucence. 
a cotton candy sculpture in the shape of a vending machine honey bun. You you, you did the first the first recorded Orange Man bad, David. <laughs> I yeah, I did. I did. I was I was like Orange Man complicated at that mm-hmm. point. But yeah, it was. Uh... <laughs> well, while we're on the topic of aesthetics, um, which by the way, what am I? long-standing theories I hope to write about is conservatism as camp. Uh, and I think Trump is kind of a campy figure and the yeah. campiest, the campiest. He's crazily campy that, that, I mean, that's like the part of the one, like the real rosebud for him is that he wanted to be a Broadway producer. <laughs> but that was like always his dream as a kid. You know, that's true, right? Oh God. I love, I love when, when he references historical moments, but you can tell he only knows about them from musicals. Yeah. Like when he talks about Avita Perone yep. and it's like, there's no way he knows who that is. He just yeah, has like, seen the musical. Right. Yes. Funny thing truly did happen on the way to the forum. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I hadn't heard about it. Yeah, it's but that shit is so good. But that's like that's really who he is. He's a yeah. blowhard gossip in a steakhouse. I know it's so true. And I to me the camp stuff. Uh, it, it was I had thought about it before this, but on election day when he tweeted out the uh, like two minute long video of him quasi dancing to YMCA. That was his closing argument. That was the thing that replaced the American Carnage video from 2016. Yes, and it and it was just it, it, he tweeted that video out, and the only thing the tweet said was "vote, vote, vote," and it was him kind of shaking his fists, not exactly dancing to YMCA, but so the aesthetics of Trump are interesting to me in many ways. But one of the pieces you wrote, kind of about aesthetics, was a piece around last Christmas on kind of the Trump. White House, and you get into Melania some too, the the way they decorated the White House. It's called a unified theory of Trump's creepy aesthetic. Um, And you say the bloodless exorbitance of the White House's Christmas stagecraft reveals a deeper truth about the presidential couple. Could you talk about that piece some? Tis the season, David. Yeah, it is. I mean, basically, if there's already Hallmark movies on, we should be talking about Christmas. It's one of my, it's honestly one of my favorite ones that I wrote. I'm glad I mentioned it then. That's the piece, too, that my friend uh, John, longtime New Year Enemy listener, quoted back to me without prompting, uh, especially your line at the very end where you say, uh, they, meaning the Trumps, they don't know when to stop. They have never known when to stop. They do not know how to stop because they never really understood why they got started in the first place. Tell us about that piece, Um, and what, what kind of the Trump Christmas, Trump White House Christmas aesthetic reveals about uh, the man and the presidency? So it's it's an extension of I think more the way that that like Mar-a-Lago is and the way that like Trump's aesthetic has sort of always been than it is like anything to do with previous White House Christmases. <laughs> like that is kind of you know like a kitschy familiar thing where you know you get a tree and there's like a card and the first lady and her and the dog are in front of it or whatever and it's like it's all <laughs> super corny and false or whatever but like it's not like the damaging kind of super corny and false. Like I'm, I've never been mad at it, but there's something about the, so that year especially was like, so that was the, the third Christmas that Melania had decorated at the white house. And they'd all been really weird. Like there was too much stuff. It didn't look nice. And the videos themselves didn't have any sort of warmth to them. Like they were, they were ominous. And that last one is just basically Melania herself striding through it's like a a perfume commercial but for like (laughs) with like if you could make a perfume that was fash 
Like it was really <laughs> like a bizarre combination of aesthetics. So there's there's like footmen standing at attention in the doorways. You can't see them, but it's basically Melania like grimly squinting as she walks through these hallways that are in one case it's uh, lined with like small blood red Christmas trees, like truly like psychotic aesthetics. And yet, like, what's clear from it is that, like, this is not an expression of Christmas that anybody has ever experienced before. That this is not, like, just that it's, like, bigger and dumber, which is, like, the usual Trump way. But it's just, like, this isn't somebody that's, like, ever had fun on Christmas. Like, Uh I'm Jewish. My wife is not. So I haven't had – but, like, I had more fun as a kid on Christmas going to see, like, an Oliver Stone movie with my dad – and then going home and like having pizza with my family, like that. That was ordering Chinese in. Yeah, right. Ordering Chinese, but I'd be like two down the middle on it. But yes, there yeah. you go, Matt. He's learning. But but I do think that there's like also this element of it though, where like I've had Christmases since. Like they're great. You like you get a tree. It smells good. You hang some stuff on it. You put gifts under it, and you open them. It's like it's not complicated. It is the sort of thing that you would literally have to be Donald Trump not to see the appeal of. Yeah. And that element, that, like, uncanniness of it, it's, like, the sort of thing that maybe would be sympathetic if he were a different person entirely. But there's something there where it's just, like, this is, like, a very profound missing of the point. Yeah. That it's somebody that, like, and you can see it if you've ever been in Trump Tower, that, like, it is super gaudy. But then also, like, for something that's so big, it is tacky and claustrophobic. All the places that are in it except for the Tiffany store, are named after him. If you go downstairs, there's, like, the Trump ice cream shop next to, like, the Trump cafe. Uh If you go upstairs, there's, like, you know, whatever, the Trump bookstore that only sells Trump books. But there's, like, (laughs) it's a real, like, like the moment in being John Malkovich where he, like, enters his own mind sort of (laughs) vibe to it. Malkovich, Malkovich, yeah. And, Mm -hmm. but that, too, like, is, like, you can feel how small the man's understanding of of the world is. And so the idea that like, even something like this, like the most universal sentiment that you could send somebody, which is like, enjoy a few days off around this holiday, non-denominational sentiment, enjoy some time with your family around this holiday, you know, and enjoy winter when it is cold and there's snow and the conifers look good. It's just utterly beyond him. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not a thing that he could like even convincingly say. And that, I think in some ways that fits with, like, the way that Fox has made Christmas and wishing people a Merry Christmas, which is, again, like, the easiest thing to do in the world, some sort of, like, partisan flashpoint. I know. That, like, it's just all you can understand is reaction and gaudiness uh-huh. and, like, the actual, like, the spirit and the joy of it is just not in the cards. If no one's being spited or humiliated, where's the fun? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's – since we're talking about Christmas, we're, we're going to move on. But uh, I – I would be remiss not to mention the classic Trump moment from Christmas 2018, which is when he was on the phone with that seven-year-old. <laughs> yes, uh, hell yeah. And uh, he, he says, the kid's name was Coleman, and he said, uh, do, do you still believe in Santa? Because at seven, it's marginal, right? It's marginal. <laughs> and that's so where it's good. like extremely funny, but he probably didn't intend it that way. Yep. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention something that puts your whole... Your, your piece, your excellent piece in a slightly different context, which is the Melania Christmas tape, 
which is her going, I have to do this Christmas shit. I don't want to do. They say I have to do Christmas, but I have to do it, right? But I don't fucking care about Christmas. It's so good. First of all, that's an extremely good Melania. Like that's, I've been waiting. That I've, been, I've been sitting on my hands waiting to do polish it. Polish and practice. Such a hard uh, one. But it, had, it is exactly that um, like artless. And it's like one of those, like, those old like, celebrities at their worst. Yeah. Records that you used to be able to get where it was just like Casey Kasem getting mad and being like, fucking patches. Why do I have to talk about this dog? You know, like just a totally fed up rich person who doesn't care about anything that yeah. like normal people would care about. Oh, my God. Incredible. So because we don't have a lot of time left and it's what's probably been on most of our listeners minds of late as much as they probably enjoyed going back through the uh, the, the picture book of the past four years. Um yeah, who wouldn't? <laughs> Treasured <laughs> memories. Yeah, exactly. We want to talk about what's happening now, which seems to be, in many ways, kind of just... It's like you wrote in your, your piece for TNR, I think it was called The Littlest Prince. Yeah, it's the most recent one. Which is that it's exactly what was going to happen, what was always going to happen. And it mm-hmm. seems to be very much like the apotheosis of everything that we're talking about here. The fact that these institutions are incapable of dealing with a man who knows no shame, who only cares about, um, who only cares about never being seen, never experiencing himself as having lost, and never feeling bad or feeling any consequences for anything that he's done. Um, that we have these institutions that are completely incapable of dealing with that scenario and a republican party that is complete has become completely beholden to him and his base and in order to continue to wield control in this country so it's kind of like the the trump the interregnum the post-election trump behavior really does seem to be it's just everything but like sadder but sadder, and I think one of the th- the reasons that I think it's great that we had you on now is that there's a way where it all comes into even even starker relief now that he's about to be gone, like he's about not to be president anymore, and it becomes clear it becomes so clear that now like his interests are no longer aligned completely with the Republican Party. We're for the first time in this moment, I talked about this on a bonus episode, where it's like during the primary again, where Trump's interests are all about Trump. And the Republican Party has its own interests that are not allied with it. And so suddenly, all of his batshit neuroses and self-obsession is like given flight in the purest sense. It's like, it's all on display. And the Republican Party still, they don't really know what to fucking do about it. The story that Trump used to tell on the stump, I was always fascinated by the um, the scorpion and the frog. And he used to tell it as like, just kind of an, as a anti-immigration parable. But like, I heard that in synagogue when I was a kid or in Hebrew school. Yeah. And it was clearly what it was about was like, not, you know, the idea of like, be careful around scorpions or whatever, like literal version of it Trump had. The idea was like, it is the nature of some things to do harm. And that I think that where Trump is concerned, like it is very clear what bargain everybody that has ever gotten into business with him has made, which is that like, he maybe he'll be fun to be around for a while. You might make a little bit of money sooner or later. Everybody that gets into bed with him winds up worse off that like, there's just no way that he can share with other people for an extended period of time. He's never done it. And I don't think it's in his nature to do it. And I think that, you know, 
him filling that vacuum in 2016 is like, you know, obviously that's like a failure of the, the party in the sense that like they didn't have a better answer or a better candidate, you know, to sort of replace him. But I mean, this is really where the, you can see the bill kind of coming due because like they've now they're stuck with a base that demands something that they're not really equipped to give uh, and demands like a sort of a style of politics that, you know, there's been some kind of like funny, you know, moments of it you know, during the campaign and stuff like that, watching these kind of like patrician septuagenarian Republican senator types get up there and be like, cry more lib. Mm-hmm. And like this sort of like try, you know, <laughs> Trumpism on for size and like see yeah. how it's and it like it doesn't sound that mm-hmm. good coming out of like, you know, Bill Cassidy's mouth. You know, like he's not built for it. Yeah. Like that's just a fucking golf club guy. Well, neither is it built for these like built made in the lab conservative like elites like right. Josh Hawley and uh, Tom Cotton. When, once you've once you've had the good shit, you don't want to cut with right like literal baby laxative in human form. Tom Cotton, <laughs> yeah. And there is that like also, but you can see that they're trying to like those guys because they still fancy themselves to be like thinkers and leaders and stuff are trying to you know talk about this idea of like national populism like they're like reverse engineering some sort of like ethos <laughs> yeah. out of trump being mm-hmm. like like trump's values are like more for me fuck you like that's just all that it is yeah and so they're trying to like look at that and you know this is it's the whole conservative project writ large it's the idea of like whatever the coke version of libertarianism that that's like somehow now studied that you can get like a graduate degree in writing about it or whatever like there's nothing there like that's been a clown show forever yeah and so in this case like Mm -hmm. to see those guys try to talk about you know like what does the america first agenda mean like what does it truly mean to be an america firster and like it's all going to come down to the fact that like they're not compelling enough or like i mean they're certainly cruel enough but they're just they're boring so this is one of the things that Matt and I were talking about the other day is like, uh, you know, I, I, of course, hope that the Republican Party, that he drags them down and destroys them. Right. That's that would be justice. Um, it's kind of like, you know, Matt wrote about them, the Republican Party riding the Trump tiger back in the during the primary mm-hmm. uh, during the election. And that was exactly right. But the implication is that at some point, the tiger is going to maul their face. And yeah. it seems right mm-hmm. now, like the first time ever that it seems at least plausible. You know, you saw Donald Trump Jr. This today or yesterday was online telling people not to listen to the activists who are saying to boycott the Georgia election. You know, that's silly. Don't do that. But like, of course, like there's <laughs> there are people like Jack, Jack Posobiec <laughs> yeah. saying, oh, we shouldn't vote in Georgia to spite them for what they did to Trump. Um, I hope that they get mauled. They deserve to get mauled. I'm not certain that they will. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I mean, because there's like the tribal stuff is so, yeah. you know, deep. But there is, I think you're absolutely right, though, that like Posobiec, like those types of guys, all these like grifters that got in the game and like got their beaks wet over the last few years, like this is all they've got, man. Like that hustle is not going to go away. Mm-hmm. They don't care about the Republican Party. Yeah, they're not loyal to anybody. Yeah. And, but, you know, I was reminded of this when you, you guys are talking about how you can't really replace mm-hmm. Trump. I mean, you, you wrote a good piece about whether Junior could do it. And it's, you know, you're, it's ambivalent, right? I mean, I don't think he can. That was like kind of a challenge in writing that story. Yeah. It was that, like, to me, it was an idea that, you know, my editor came to me with. And like, to me, the, the short answer is no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But, you know, there's a there's a style there that mm-hmm. they both understand. Anyway, go on. I interrupted. Well, no. One of the things that it made me think about is um, that 
there's there's a story that we tell about what happened to the Democratic Party, which is that in a weird way, they lucked into having Obama be president because he was just this figure that held together a nonsense coalition mm-hmm. which didn't really provide anything substantive for people in their lives you know you know he could able he could do this like weak sauce stimulus which nonetheless led to you know millions of foreclosures and people you know <laughs> getting totally fucked over by the financial crisis and nonetheless yeah. be seen as this great president this and 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 it had a lot to do with just his incredible charisma his personal story his um skill as a politician the fact that he was the first black president mm-hmm. and how he linked that to history in a really compelling way in a justified way but he held together these these contradictions in the democratic party that really were uh, bursting at the seams um you know he he held on to each side of it and pulled it together and held it there for 8 years and then in 2016 it kind of blew open i don't it's not analogous because in many ways the republican coalition is less incoherent than the uh democratic one than the democratic sort of coalition of of rich elites in wall street and um all and working class people of color <laughs> older working class people of color yeah or that doesn't make as much sense really as the republican party that's being formed by trump but nonetheless i think like trump has held something together mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense either this conflict between you know this between like you know the hardcore social conservatives who you know integralists who are who want Catholics to sort of take over the government, and then you have the libertarians, uh, the Koch brothers who don't necessarily have any interest in that, but are still just you know wanting to do upward redistribution, and then you have now kind of people who are invested in this economic populism, and I think there are sincere people involved in Republican politics who want that, but all of this doesn't make any sense uh, really either, and Trump papers it over. Over with his incredible, you know, just fame and charisma and yeah, fame and charisma and celebrity and his total weirdness. But, you know, it kind of works And the allegiance. He the allegiance he kind of yeah. generates. He just generates um, that's, it. Yeah. that's that's what strikes me with talking to family members. And, you know, you can just see certain Reuters had that piece about people ready to kind of go to war for Trump. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's like people weren't going to go to war for George W. Bush. Like, literally take up arms. And they're sure not going to go to war for any of those ideas. No. I mean, like, all of the things that you just, that you kind of did that speed run through are, like, some of the worst and most unpopular political ideas that the country has ever seen. <laughs> right. <laughs> that this is, like, there is no constituency for that outside of, you know, the, their embodiment in the sort of corpus of this, like, charismatic, famous rich guy. Right. In the way that, in the way that we've said for a long time that the, the, the neocons and the libertarians are deluded into thinking that the Republican base really cares about deregulation and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in, in the way that, that the Trumpists sort of came in and said, um, they don't care about that shit. What they want is, uh, you know, economic populism with, like, more kind of Christian nationalism. But, like... But that's also, they're also deluded about that. Yeah, I agree. I think this is, we keep trying to find ways to make it smarter than it is. And it's Trump. And so the the thing I think about, and this will be a project, of course, the podcast for <laughs> many months to come, uh, if not longer. Yeah, I was going to say, best not to think about how much further all of this gets. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but what, but, but, but is it going to fall apart? Like they hope that there's, you know, you know, there's two two factions of the Republican Party, those who hope that they can go back 
uh, to Romney and Bush era kind of government governance uh, and politicking and people who think that there's a way through through, mm-hmm. um, you know, neo Trumpism, um, you know, with a, a more staid and polished politician. But I think both of those are are probably delusions. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I just think that like the what it sort of illuminated, I mean, I guess you can still do those things. I mean, this is where that thing we were discussing earlier about like, are consequences real? Like, is there any way that any of this could ever be something that like, and could any of these policy failures be things that are, you know, then things that politicians are held to account over? Like, if that's no longer the case, then they can go ahead and deregulate everything, even though nobody wants it, as long as they keep providing the the Trumpy stuff. I don't think that, you know, like tonally, I don't think anyone's ever going to give them as pure a high as Trump did because he's like, he's so rude and he's so big and it's, you know, a guy that you know or whatever. And he just makes people feel good mm-hmm. about themselves. I mean, that's just real. Yeah. For whatever, I guess, yeah, because he's like an aspirational brand or whatever in his way. You know, it's just like, this is your rich your rich friend who's going to send you a check. Yeah, I know, David, w- uh, one quick anecdote to that point. Uh, my parents have visited me in New York just once during the time I've been here. They're not really city people. But I remember we were walking around Central Park around uh, Columbus Circle, and I showed them Trump Tower. And I had this moment of realization when my mom looked up at Trump Tower and she said, Wow, imagine owning that. I mean, that's, I mean, that is a very pure American response to a big, gilded, shitty building. Mm-hmm. And, and like, and it's hard to top that. It's hard know, to argue with it because you can't, I mean, like, what's the alternative is when you, like, then you turn into like a Democratic politician and being like, well, property taxes are very high. And, you know, like, a lot of the people that are that own in there, it's actually just tax shelters. They don't even live there. <laughs> you know, like, what are you doing then? <laughs> well, I mean, one thing that I this is reminding me is that I, I think Trump has, this is a little counterintuitive and maybe wrong, but I think Trump has less disdain for the Republican base, considerably less than the typical Republican. As long as, the, as, long as they adore him, yes. That's the thing, though. They do. And those people, a person who, like, who relies exclusively on validation from large crowds of people can express a certain kind of gratitude when those people provide it. Like when he's up there on the stage, mm-hmm. you know, when, with his people, you know, if he's up like in front of some kind of like Christian leadership conference, whatever the fuck, yeah. like he will say some disparaging things, you know, like I don't really get you people. But when he's with his people, even if he sort of, you know, does a little bit of the like, oh, you hicks, you eat it up, you love this shit, this slop. He nonetheless, mm-hmm. like, express, he sort of, there, there's a feeling of, like, mutuality and gratitude there that I think people pick up on that you don't get when somebody is thinking of you purely as, uh, you know, fulfilling some kind of calculus in their political agenda. Yeah, of course. That's all politicians capable of providing people now that we can't govern. Which is basically the idea that, like, I'm going to have other people beat up people you don't like on your behalf. And you can hang out here with me and party while it happens. And I'm going to say, I love you. I love you. I love you. And, uh-huh. and, you know, whatever. That's like saying that back and forth to a politician, like, is so perverse to me. Like that. It is. But that really is like the dynamic of, you know, Trumpism. And it's not the sort of thing that I think is very easily replicated. I do think that there's an element where, like, Obama was able to inspire that because he was, as you said, I mean, just like a generational talent as a communicator. Inspiring. And yeah, and then, and you know, whatever, everything about him sort of was inspiring, except for all the things that he did. 
Mm-hmm. But the, with Trump, I mean, it's like that element of like the complete delinking of the things that you do and the response that you inspire to me feels like the end of something. <laughs> uh, and that's the part of it that is like sort of worrying to me because I think that like, you know, it's not like we have done so great nominating politicians, you know, to run for political office. You know, it's not nothing that says that like. Uh, you know, on the Democrat side that like a defense lawyer and on the Republican side, like an executive or like small business fascist <laughs> or whatever. They're like, none of that is exactly like that has gotten us exactly where we are and no further. But like, it does seem to me that like the celebritization of politics and the like the complete sort of turning away from like the actual like governance mm-hmm. aspect of it that like that is worrying and I think is the sort of thing where like the Republicans will naturally be ahead of Democrats in that <laughs> now. Oh yeah. 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 I think so too. And I don't know, you know where any of that goes. Like I, I hope that like president the rock like listens to his advisors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's still like worrying to think about. Yeah. I don't want to leave it on that note though. I do think if there's any silver lining to, to what David's outlined there, uh, I do in the short term, I do think, Trump kind of does hold it all together, as we've been saying. And so, you know, in immediate electoral terms, at least at the presidential level, I just wonder, Republicans have not won the popular vote in what, like seven of the last eight elections? And it seems like Trump, Trump kind of maxed out this year, right? He, he turned out 10 million more people than he did in 2016. And it's kind of hard to imagine, I I mean, knock on wood, I could be proven wrong, but it's sort of hard to imagine someone improving on that, right? Specifically in the ways that feed into the inbuilt biases of our political system, right? The the kinds of people Trump turned out, the, the, you know, the fact that Blair County, where I grew up, Trump turned out, he he won 71% of uh, the vote there this year in central Pennsylvania, you know, so those margins happened all over the country in small towns and rural areas. And, you know, it's because for the reasons you, that were just described, I think he tapped into something and people felt they, he stirred something in them and they felt an allegiance to him and felt that he was doing something for them that uh, I'm not sure a Marco Rubio or a Josh Hawley or a Tom Cotton can replicate. So I don't know where that leaves us. Well, it leaves us with the Democrats, unfortunately. Yeah, right. And it seems to me right. like there's a fairly mm-hmm. obvious response to all of that, which is to actually do things. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and then just be like, this guy just talked about all the stuff that he was going to do for you. And like, all he did was like, kind of make you feel good by telling you that you were the real Americans. Like, I'm the guy that sent you $2,000. Yes. <laughs> and yet, like, they can't bring themselves to do that. I know. That's the, th- this is the, you know, not to go off on a tangent or anything, but like this, the student loan uh, debt cancellation debate. I think the most persuasive argument I've heard is just to do it, no matter who it benefits, and have that be one of many things you do that you can say actually help people. Yeah. Well, and then you go, and then you go, uh, if the Republicans say, oh, you're just trying to help the professional managerial class, you go, oh, you want to help other people? Let's do it. Yeah. Sit down. Let's yeah. get it going. Yeah, let's do it. Call their bluff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that like, if they were serious about this stuff, like, which for some reason they somehow are not. Like, Donald Trump was literally president for four years, and they're still at, at this level of abstraction on it. I, I know. I know. It's really frustrating. I know. It's 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 deranged. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. 
Yeah, it'll all work. <laughs> That's usually where we end on yeah. this podcast. Yeah, yeah it'll probably be That's fine. That's terrific. And we'll see you next week for uh, what good things are happening here. <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on and giving us so much time. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah, it was fun in a twisted sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Someday we'll uh, look back on all of this and... I have no idea, honestly, what, <laughs> how to finish that thought. But yes, it was it was good to go over it with y'all. I, thank you very much for having me. Well, let's yeah, meet thank for you. Um, for vodka martinis with ice and olives at the Trump uh, Hotel yeah. uh, bar. Meet in the basement in a red wine glass. Let's get it. Definitely. One day <laughs> when this is all over. Yeah. All righty. I'll take you all out for the Trump's ice cream shop. Yes, <laughs> yes. please. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, David. Thanks a lot. Yep. Thank you, guys.